Welcome to The Savvy Founder, the one place for entrepreneurs and business owners, away from the everyday bustle, where we help you find your path to a profitable and bright future. Now here's your host, The Savvy Founder and armchair sociologist himself, Philip Topham. Hi, I'm Philip Topham, the savvy founder and armchair sociologist. I'm really happy today to have Rand Fishkin in the audience. Uh, in the audience, what? What? That's, that's a screw up, right? That in the studio. <laughs> I promise. I promise, Philip. I will be part of the audience today. Boy, that. Oh boy, Freudian slip there or whatever. Uh, so, welcome, Rand. How are you doing? Uh, thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we, we got introduced uh, because we were, um, as I was sharing with you when, when we were chatting, that I had this concept over the Silicon Valley myth, and uh, you, you were introduced to me because of that myth. And um, just if you recall, I was saying that because of the dot-com era, there's still this echo of when people used to go to coffee shops, have conversations and quote, walk out with a $5 million check. And there's still this kind of belief. Do you, do you believe that to be true? I, I, I know you've written on that subject. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it absolutely still does happen. Right. I know, I know folks, um, founders who have yep walked into usually a, VC's offices um, or, or had a Zoom call and um, at least walked away with a term sheet for, for an investment, right? And I think that happens because, you know, they are closely networked to the right sorts of people and they get introduced via the right vectors and they look right and sound right and fit all the right demographic buckets and geographic buckets. And um, there is a lot of, there is a, a metric ton of money in the venture ecosystem right now um, and has been for a number of years. And that's partially because it's it's tough to find return on investment elsewhere. Um, and so you get these crazy deals uh, that happen at the drop of a hat. Yeah, uh, you know, I jumped in and started asking you questions about the Silicon Valley, but you know, why don't you give us a, the audience just a little bit of your background and so we can come into yeah, sure. this uh, perspective on, on why, why. Oh, I like starting. Yeah, hot, we're hot, man. man. We're let's, right let's in there. Like... But, but, you know, let's get them caught up. Uh, you know, Rand, we're, you know, give us a thumbnail of, of how you got in the startup and, and, you know, you started writing on the subject and, and such, and now you have your own venture, but just give us a little bit there. Sure. Yeah. So um, for folks who, who might not know, I started a company called Moz, which is, venture backed, um, raised about $30 million of capital uh, over, I guess, three investment rounds um, from a, a local venture investor here in Seattle, which is fairly sizable called Ignition Partners. And then from a, a well-known group out of Boulder called Foundry Group. Um, I pitched over the course of uh, seven years as CEO of Moz, probably a good hundred uh, venture investors and, and obviously got turned down by almost all of them. Uh, and yeah, that, that company was relatively successful kind of up to a point. So Moz, you know, grew rapidly hundred percent year over year from zero to about 30 million. I think today it's hovering somewhere around 50 million in revenue, but growth has plateaued quite a bit. Um, I stepped down as CEO uh, almost seven years ago and then um, was at the company for a few more years and left 
to start another one, SparkToro, which I currently run, uh, that is not venture funded. And a big part of that is sort of my learnings from the first experience. Yeah, so let's, now that we've got that and get the audience caught up, let's go back to what you said in the Silicon Valley that that you had to be on the right vector. You like, you had to know the right people, you know, in, in raising money for your business, did you know, you know, you, you've obviously raised money, but how did you get to know the right people where, you know, what was, what was the situation there? Yeah. I, I mean, a ton of it is um, personal and professional networking. So there, you know, you have a massive leg up if you have, gone to the right schools, in the right places, been friends with the right people, um, come from a wealthy family and have family introductions, you know, a ton of uh, the statistical analyses of founders who get venture backing are, they're almost exclusively men, they're white and Asian, they are uh, in very specific, you know, high, uh, density ge geographic areas, primarily in the United States, a little bit Europe and, and UK. Um, so you are, you know, you're seeing some of that start to change now, but it is still statistically speaking, overwhelmingly those sorts of people and those sorts of buckets that, that venture capital flows to. And I, I had the same experience, right? So I wasn't from a wealthy family. Um, I'm from Seattle though, so that helped, right? I had a few connections here that I built up over the years and a lot through um, actually consulting work that I did early in my career with Silicon Valley startups and relationships that I built with founders um, down there. So like Jeremy Stoppelman, the founder of Yelp, hired me early on in Yelp's you know, growth to uh, do SEO for them. And so Jeremy introduced me to a lot of other entrepreneurs. Um, I helped out Nirav Tolia, who's now the, the founder um, and CEO of, of Nextdoor. I, I think he's not the CEO anymore, but uh, he, you know, had run a previous company and, and I'd worked together with him and um, yeah, a number of other startups like that. So that was kind of my networking in, and then it was lots of trips down to the Bay Area um, and Boston and New York um, and sort of, you know, uh, conversations with those types of people, lots of dinners and parties and yeah. You know, yeah. Sort of so in that though, when you got to the point though, in your networking, I would say to founders that the, um, the number one thing that they can do that's free is build their relationships with people, build their connections and, and really, ask for help and get those connections and, and start building that. So you have somebody that can vouch for you. Right. Right. Yeah. So how important was having somebody vouch for you? Like, did you just show up to the, the, oh. the places blind or you always had to have somebody vouch for you? Always, always had to get a connection and introduction and invitation. Uh, I don't think, I don't think I ever successfully reached out to anyone in that sort of world or circle, certainly not uh, on the investment side and got a meeting without an introduction. So essentially, you know, the, the way the venture capital um, system works is that, you know, you get introduced by someone who knows the partner. Sometimes there's outreach. So we did, you know, with Ignition, Michelle Goldberg, who's a, a partner at Ignition, reached out to me. Um, and this was, you know, was a, 
very random connection. I think her, one of her associates at her firm was married to a woman who worked with my wife, Geraldine at Cranium, the board game uh-huh. company. Um, right. And so it was one of those seven degrees of it, connection, right? Yeah. It seemed like it was a, Oh, she must've just heard that Moz is an exciting company. Nope. Nope. It was a connection. It wasn't even seven degrees. It was like one. Right. Degree, you know, yeah, two degrees, it, right? yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I was kind of poking fun that it was seven degrees, but yeah, no, it yeah. was really much closer than that. And, and um, I'd like you to, you know, comment on this. This is, this is how I sort of sum up networking, right? It's, it's not what, you know, it's not who, you know, it's, it's not even who knows you, but it's who knows you and talks good things about you when you're not in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I think there's also Philip, right. There's a, there's a deeply biased system, uh, that, that underlies this whole thing. Right. So, um, you know, you've got to, you've got to look right and act right and come from the right kinds of places and have the right sorts of pedigrees. And so venture capital is an industry that, you know, uh, I, I, what's the the famous statistic, right? That there are more men named James, um, uh, uh, more capital has gone to men named James yeah. uh, in the last twenty years than all women combined. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, it is it is phenomenal to me. And 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 when I started this, um, you know, the Savvy Founder podcast, it was to try to elevate the conversation. You know, there's so many f- people wanting to do startups and um, they don't know how to go about it, you know, or they go talk to an investor and the investor says, you know, come back when you have, and, and they hear what they hear and they think they're, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. And it's the, it's the most terrible advice. So you, you've seen that as well. So how, how do we change this conversation that that's going on with the way investments work, right? You're, that's what you're. Yeah. Well, I think, there's two places where I would put pressure, right? One is on um, investors themselves. I think that they need to take a long, hard look at the fact that, you know, 80% of venture funds don't return the minimum investment that they promise to their LPs. And the fact that their investments are so biased towards certain kinds of founders in certain types of markets. Um, those two, in my opinion, are deeply connected, right? They're, they're not breaking outside their bubble. And so they're locked into this model. I think the second place that I would put pressure is on the cultural ecosystem among us founders that we can, for ourselves, Philip, we can choose to pursue different paths. We don't have to raise money in this way from these people. There are numerous other kinds of ways to fund businesses you know, on our own, from our customers, from Kickstarter and Indiegogo, from um, other sources of crowdfunding, from private investment groups, from angel investors who are interested in alternatives, from all sorts of new uh, funds and startup accelerators that are trying new things. And, and I, you know, I say this as someone who built my own funding structure and raised money from mostly people who are now my customers, right? right? I went out to agency owners and I said, hey, I think I can build this software that does this amazing market research thing. And I think it'll be really useful to you. Do, you. do you want to invest? And they were like, I believe in both you and I believe in this product 
yes, I want to put 25 grand into it and own a little chunk of this. Company. Right. So, so what you're saying, you know, to say that a, a different way, um, you know, if we're a founder and we turn on the radio or the news or the internet, and all we hear is, uh, you know, here's this big uh, Silicon Valley Sand Hill investment, and here's the Manhattan investment, and we buy into these aspirational, you know, billion dollar babies, um, and we say, oh, that's the path, right? You're saying, hey, change the channel. Go, go to the public's go to the public service channel go to go to PBS go listen into what somebody else is saying and and go talk to some other people you might find a different way okay that, that's 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 exactly right. right that's exactly right so you you don't have to listen to what, what is essentially you know relatively subtle but but not um, ineffective propaganda from the venture industry right so venture capital um, funds, not only we're responsible for a lot of the big tech monopolies that exist today, and so those tech monopolies and the press that cover them sort of reflect this idea that to build a big tech company, you have to be venture-backed. They are also the underwriters of most of the conferences and many of the websites and the advertising that happens on them and the companies that do the advertising on them. And so you get this whole ecosystem that's kind of custom-crafted for and by venture. And this, in my opinion, is how we end up with the propaganda that we have, that, that founders believe the way to success is through this investment class exclusively. Unfortunately, I have found that it's very difficult to get media and press, uh, especially in the tech world and, and the mainstream media world, to cover indie startups the way they cover big venture backed monopolies that maybe that's another place to put pressure. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. It's, it's, I, I think that's part of the, the whole, um, uh, you, you got me thinking now, you know, I'm so, <laughs> yeah, yeah right, man, right. right? Yeah. Like this so, is, so it's, 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 right? it's, it's like the unintended, I, I call this the unintended consequence of the internet. Like these tiny behaviors cause things to happen. Right. So if you build a very large, media and you need to have an audience and you need to have this, you know, these things, then you start creating a situation where you can only advertise or, or have sponsorships by the largest companies, right? You can't, you can't cover the small places because you can't get the, 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 you can't meet the demands of your big sponsorship. And I think that's where, you know, maybe podcasting and, and all the other organizations out there across the United States could, you know, have their own way of, focusing on indies, right? You know, on, on yeah, I mean my my hope is that places like indiehackers.com which is which is run by a friend Cortland Allen and you know, I think is just a wonderful and amazing community for independent and self-started entrepreneurs in, in tech. Um I'm super excited about that. There's a bunch of subreddits in all sorts of sectors around, you know, everything from like indie game dev to indie developers um to indie startups. There are communities um, like Tara Reed runs uh, apps without code, right? Where you can go and, and join. There's, um, you know, funds like uh, Tiny Seed Investment Fund, which which my wife and I are, are small investors in, which you know funds startups using the SparkToro model of a, this different way to fund your company. So there are, you know, the the rumblings of change, um, but it's still just very tiny compared to. The broader ecosystem and unfortunately there's still a ton of prestige associated with raising venture and 
part of me, you know, when I see like a friend has raised a bunch of money, you know, the thing to say, the thing you're supposed to say is congratulations, mazel tov, like that's amazing. But the thing that I want to say is, oh God, you've probably doomed yourself. Yeah. Right. Because statistically speaking, that's the truth. Most venture investments, not even most, I think it's 93 out of a hundred, right? It's able to meet their minimum investment It's over 90. Yeah. It's over 90. That is, that's awful odds. Your odds of repaying an SBA loan are way better. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Your odds of making a restaurant work during COVID are better. Yeah. 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 That's that's a, that's a head twister. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I agree. It's, it's kind of, um, you know, if you've raised money, it's kind of like you put a badge on, like you put a medal, like I survived, I survived D-Day, I survived Normandy, I, you know, I, I, I made it through and you're kind of, you're suggesting that they're the wounded warriors that, you know, they're wounded from that, right? And they're, they're probably not going to be yeah. able to build their dream. I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure if World War II is the, the right comparison, but it's definitely, <laughs> there's definitely like a, you know, a high, a high percentage of folks who don't meet their minimum expectations. And, and because of that, those founders, the teams that work for them, mm-hmm. right, who usually are undercompensated and, and paid in, you know, heavily in stock options, they will have a bad time, right? Their career won't do as well financially um, or status-wise as it could have otherwise. Um, and their customers are going to have a bad time. Right. Right. So I, I can't tell you how many services and products I've tried. Oh, I love this product. It's so great. Oh man, it got, you know, aqua hired and it's getting shut down. Or um, oh it, you know, it's dying and going away forever. <laughs> Shoot, right? Yeah, like th- those yeah, really yeah. suck. Yeah, exactly. You'd like to see more of those um, survive because we, you know, that's to me the new you know, America has this small business engine. You know, we we look at those statistics, but um, we need more businesses to get started that have sustainable, you know, how many, you know. We, yeah, we're in this dangerous stop, Philip. So for, for my book, For Lost and Founder, right, I did a bunch of research on this. And my assumption, just because of being in the universe that we're in, my assumption was we're in a startup boom. And, and the reality is the absolute opposite. I, I think uh, in the last 45 years, uh, there's never been a time when there were fewer new businesses started per capita or fewer people employed by new and small businesses than right now. So we are in a startup dearth. You know, go back to 1975 and technically way more small and new businesses are starting. And this is part of, you know, this is part of the problem with monopoly power and, and sort of the oligopoly system of the U.S. and like more power accruing to the big players um, in each sector, uh, you know, Amazon takes the wind out of a lot of sales. Google too. Yeah, and, and unless you can happen to be lucky and become a VP, and then you leave, and then you go to the venture route and you get your big check, which is fits the. But you have to be, as you said, of the right ethnicity, which was basically is really bad. Um, yeah, gender and location right. yeah. and you know, ability status, right? Like if you, you know, you, you compromise on any of those things and um, man, it is, <laughs> it's rough. So, so what advice do you give that, that, that technology, 
you know, we're, we're that technology founder. He he sees a problem in the marketplace, and he's likely or she. Uh, let me say she. Uh, in fact, I, I shouldn't say any problem. Right? We're we're on this precipice of incredible change. I can't imagine very many businesses in the future where technology isn't integral to the business. Right? Yeah. So whatever business they solve how they do it, they'll use technology, right? Right. But to build the how takes a lot of money sometimes, you know, right? Or, or energy or effort or whatever. So what advice do you give that entrepreneur on how they go from this idea, a conversation with a couple of customers to really building that traction for their business. What, what, what would you tell? Obviously, you don't, you tell them, don't talk to venture capitalists. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's not entirely true. I think for a very rare subset, venture is the right path. You know, if you're talking about something that's going to require tens of millions of dollars and a long period of time and a large team before you can even validate that the thing's going to work, venture is probably the way to go. But most businesses, most tech businesses and most tech entrepreneurs um, aren't in that world, right? They are building things that could get started manually, could get started with a tiny team, could get started with just one person, two people and a prototype. You know, SparkToro is a, uh, my current company, right, is a business that certainly could be a venture backed business. And I probably if I hadn't written a whole book about why you maybe don't want to take venture capital, I might've been able to go raise, <laughs> right? But, um, but it is absolutely the case that, um, you know, we were able to build what is, you know, crawling billions of, of URLs and storing that data and making it accessible and turning it into, you know, a very venture style business with just two people. Um, and this is one of the beautiful things about the world that we live in today. And, you know, this is thanks to uh, cloud providers and so many libraries for technology and so much, so many people who've done it before. 99% um, of the things that you want to build, especially in software world and even in hardware world, can be done on a shocking budget. You go to Kickstarter and you look at, you know, one person um, who is, who is, able to contract out to you know, a group of other folks, whether that's in the Americas or uh, in, in Asia, and they, they managed to build something extraordinary from that. It's, it is all possible. And I, I think that my big piece of advice is to maybe consider taking a step back from the venture world first and think about whether you could build something small and profitable before you decide to go raise money. Right. Um, the, way, the way that I see things is, you, you, know, you are not taking the option of venture or of growth capital of any kind off the table by starting small and profitable. But when you do that, you put the power into your own hands to control your destiny and to decide what kind of business you wanna build and what kind of life you wanna have. Right. And as soon as you, you know, sign that term sheet, whether that's you know PE or growth capital or an accelerator program or whatever it is, you're on a different path, right? And you have different obligations. Right. You, you, uh, that's a key thing that I uh, that you said to take control of your life, right? You don't have to do things the way somebody else's model dictates just because 
it feels like that's how it's done. You can, and when you change, you know, when you change the metrics for success, so, you know, success to SparkToro means being profitable long-term over many years. That is way different from Moz, my previous company, which was how do we get to hundred million in uh, ARR, uh, annual recurring revenue, right. with a growth rate of 25% or more yeah. so that we can go public at a valuation that will return, you know, this amount of money to our investors. One of those two is achievable by a tremendous number of startups that try. And one of those is almost impossible. Right. Yeah. That's what I call that. You know, there's, there's a reason there's, you know, uh, people that start listening to the podcast. Uh, there's a reason I have the path in my, my thing as part of my philosophy. You know, if, if you go on your path and you go your path forward, right. But as soon as you start to choose um, or look at somebody else's, like, this is how the venture path looks, then you're suddenly step off of your path and get onto theirs, right? And you're no longer on your own path. You're you've you've taken a complete sidetrack to where you wanted to might have wanted to go, right? You're not fully um, in uh, for your own destiny. You've got a you've got other stakeholders and other constituents that say no. You you got to you got to hit the board meeting. You got to hit the the requirements of the board. And if the board doesn't like what you said, uh, we might consider hiring a new CEO, right? Right. Yeah. And even it, the, I think the strangest part to me was my board and my investors never told me I had to do things a certain way. I, I, don't, I don't think I ever felt that direct pressure, but indirectly by being in the ecosystem, I felt the pressure of growth as the North Star metric, as opposed to profitability, survivability, serving customers well, serving employees well, right. serving myself well. Um, and, and because of that, that, that pressure, um, even indirect, even just culturally, you know, sitting there, uh, it had the effect of, you know, nudging us to make some really high risk decisions that ended up being bad in the long run. Right. Um, so it, it sounds in that process of, of raising the money and now what you you're doing through backing through the agencies and your customers, you, you had you had a bit of an epiphany, right? So so, <laughs> what what crisis was there? A crisis that created that epiphany? You know what was it? what was it? You know what? Yeah, I, I wish I could say that you know one day I sort of woke up and realized oh, this is this is not the way. But in fact, it was a long, slow burning process. You know, it was. It took me a long time from um, my experience at Moz, especially my last sort of four years at the company, to waking up and recognizing that, hey, maybe this thing is non-ideal and, and could the company do these things this different way? And then, oh gosh, I, what are the incentives that are causing us to make these you know, decisions that are not great for our customers and our market and our team? Oh, it's the incentives of our our funding model and the incentives of the structure that we're in and gosh, how do we live up to that and also serve these other things? Oh, that's not working so well. And then, oh, you know, lots of conversations with a ton of, you know, sort of my fellow founders, people who raised money around similar times, ran companies around similar times that I did and realizing that, gosh, for, you know, for every one that turned out to be HubSpot, there were a hundred 
that, you know, weren't even, that didn't even survive as long as Moz. Right. Um, or, or ever get to a place where they could continue maintaining and, you know, seeing all those teams and founders sort of struggle and, and have to do different things. That is what really woke me up to this idea that, Hey, maybe there's, maybe there's something different here. Maybe there's something right. better. Um, I also think, you know, it, it absolutely was the case that seeing the, seeing the statistics about the market woke me up to like, gosh, this, this can't be, this can't be the only way, this can't be the best way if they're only funding these type of people, something's wrong. Yeah. So, so I would characterize that as like the itch that you had, you know, the slow itch that keeps that, that's, that's just itching, right? It's like the, it, or you, you've seen something and it's this little thing yeah, at the you back of your brain, you know, to, like what's going on. And, and you're, like the, you're on this, the onion is rotten inside. Right. right. Yeah. That's exactly it. It, it, yeah. it. That's a great analogy and a great, great journey. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, again, I, I kind of think of these, these unintended consequences of the way we as a society and we as an uh, investment, the way we deploy our m monies, these are unintended consequences, right? Right. And I, I don't think anybody in the system is intending these things to occur, right? I don't think any of them intend to have one success and 93, you know, people uh, failures and all the engineers and all the salespeople and all marketing, like looking for their next job, right? They, they you know, <laughs> right. They, they, I don't think they intend that as their consequence, right? They're not even looking at that. They're not looking at the human toll. I mean, they, they know it will happen right? and they invest that way, but every investment they make they hope is the one. Right, right. Because they've, they've mitigated their risk, right? The whole investment model is to, is me, the entrepreneur, I invest my five years or six years or seven in one venture, right? Yeah. And an investor spreads out their risk by, by, by investing in a bunch, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, in my case, it was uh, 18 right? years in it, one venture and then, Right. Yep. Um, try, you know, try something else. Yeah. So um, exactly. So, th so that, that's where I think we, we have to have those different ways of doing things and figure out how to deploy those, um, those assets more equitably. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. how do we, um, so in your current ventures, where, where are you, focused on right now it's spark Torah we've talked about. Mm. So what's, what's that focus for you and, and how's that coming? Yeah. So I, I mean, so one of the things that I want to do with spark Toro is, is hopefully make it a funding model that other investors and other founders will be excited about. Um, and I think one of the ways to prove that for better or worse is to make it wildly successful uh, as an example. And so, you know, Casey and I definitely feel this pressure to like, all right, we need to uh, profitably and survivably last for a long period of time, repay our investors, hopefully get them a multiple of return on their money um, and build a company that can last for a long time uh, in this field and, and inspire other founders and other investors to do likewise. And so one of the things we did, Philip, is open source our funding documents, which um, I think you can you know, include in the show yeah, notes we'll or something. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, include in the show notes, yeah. 
Yeah. So that, you know, if you go to that link, we, we worked with our attorney, Joe Wallen, um, to essentially make an open source version that anyone can fill out. I think three or four different startups, um, a couple in the US, one in the UK, have now used our funding structure. And like I said, the Tiny Seed Investment Fund uses it. So we're hoping that more and more folks can get this, um, this concept of a uh, survivable, profitable, long-term venture that pays dividends. The, the only downside really to the SparkToro model is um, instead of long-term capital gains tax that you pay once at the sort of end of the company's life, if it's wildly successful, um, you are paying ordinary income on the, the profits and dividends. Now, my, um, my hope is that some government at some point in the near future realizes that the long-term capital gains tax dodge you know, loophole is not a good thing for um, the economy. And you can see even people in the venture world, like uh, what's his name? Um, oh my gosh, from Union Square Ventures uh, out in New York, who was you know, writing that uh, essentially we should make the tax rates the same, that you should pay, you know, if you make 50 grand as an engineer or, or 150 grand as an engineer, or you are a venture capital investor or a private market investor or a cryptocurrency investor, all the tax rates should be the same. It shouldn't right. be unfairly balanced one way or another. If that ends up, you know, coming to fruition, which could happen this administration, next administration, who knows, um, then I think models like SparkToros start to become a lot more attractive. Yeah, and I, I definitely hope, you know, I, I think that's moving in the right direction. It's, it's just like the B Corp, the benefit corp, right? You know, we, we had no change to the C Corp for, for what, a century? <laughs> and, and then eventually, they, you know, we're, we're kind of a, sometimes this nation is slow to, to make change, right? And we finally came up with a, the B Corp the B Corp. Um, it's funny how innovation feels very quick in technology, but in fact, it's a, a lot of that is around the margins, right? There's, there's big leaps and then long periods of inactivity. Yeah. It, it, that's an interesting comment. I, I think the, 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 how we do things like the technology inside the business, whether it's AI or this special database or this technology yep is moving really, really fast, right? But but the structures, right? The, the yeah, legal the system, what we're allowed to do, how we tax, how we don't, you know, those things, uh, how we distribute equity, how we share um, the upside with, with our employees, all of those things, they're pretty rigid, right? Mm -hmm. I, I never thought about it before. I mean, uh, yeah, the the stock option compensation thing, Philip. I, I don't know how many of your listeners are, you know, startup employees or have right. startup options, but um, that is a brutal, brutal racket for most employees, right? The idea being that you, you know, supposedly can benefit greatly if the company has a phenomenal exit, so long as you're still there. So long as your options were granted at the right strike prices, so long as you vested into them at the right times, you know, if you get really lucky on all the vectors, you, you could end up with hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in compensation. Um, and in 99% oh. of the cases, even 
even in 90% of the cases where the company is wildly successful, most of the employees granted stock options don't benefit. Oh, I, I'm here, here. I, <laughs> I have two times in my past uh, been given options, uh, one in a healthcare company. Um, yeah. yeah, I didn't get a single penny uh, that company exists today. Was it was it because the strike price was too high, or was it because you didn't execute the options when you left? No, or? yeah, no, it was it was because um, it the tr- the um, it's a very first time I've ever seen the venture capitals really lose. Hmm. Um, in a short version, the original business was a cash cow, traditional business, and they raised venture money. They raised 20 million venture capital to try to become the next WebMD. And so the the traditional business created a new business and I got stock options in the new business. And when all was said and done, um, the traditional business um, legal structure still existed but the venture structure legally didn't exist. And so all the options were became um, underwater and eventually that business was bankrupted, right? Because, because they didn't have any revenues, but it was quite the remarkable structure. And of course, as an employee um, at that time, you're, I was, this would be in the, just after the 2000s, 2002. So thinking that, Here's how Silicon Valley rewards people for stuff. And of course, that never worked out. Um, and then the next case was uh, a startup that, that um, funny is, is actually in the, in, um, I can't talk too much about that, but just to say that um, I was granted phantom stock options because they were an LLC, okay. which for, for people that are, might be listening, phantom stock options are, are intended to mimic stock options when the legal structure is an LLC versus a C corp or S corp. So um, in that case, um, yeah, I, I was, the company had a, a situation where they, um, you know, had no funds, right? Can't, mm-hmm. can't pay you that sort of stuff. And uh uh, had to leave the company, right? There was no, there was no income, but the primary founders, um, you know, after they, you know, pushed everyone out, you know, were able to keep the lights afloat and that, that business survived. Right. But then they, of course, then the options expired, you know, became, in, yep. in fact, options in fact, expired. um, in fact, I, you know, it's a, it's a good question to actually ask. Um, and, but but really? the technology that was built um, changed the industry. Um, it's a it's a multi many many million dollar exit for them. Uh, but as the person that primarily invented it, I, I will end up with zero. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is remarkably true um, for many founders who are pushed out of their businesses, and for many uh, executives sure. even. Right. And so you know I think. Look, stock options are a way for um, primarily venture investors and founders to benefit from a long-term sale where many of the people who've come and gone from the business have been promised a piece and an incentive you know, to, to sort of contribute 
but because they left and they didn't execute the options or because the options were granted at a strike price that right. was above right. you know what it was sold for that they didn't get any of the benefit and so you know as a right as a founder or a or a venture investor you really make out like a bandit you know you win on the backs of the people who do the work and lose i i don't think that model's particularly fair right and i don't think i don't think a venture investor who's being honest with themselves would say it's fair in most cases either but money yeah wins, it, right? yeah money it, it's there's um there's a term the phrase that i always hear is that's just business right um it doesn't have right. to be you get to make the choice right even as an employee when you are starting at a company you can say to yeah. them hey keep your stock options and you pay me some extra amount. Tell me what you think those options are worth. If you think they're worth anything at all, tell me what you think they're worth right now in my salary and give me that instead. That's what that's my preference. And if that if the company is not willing to do that, well great. You you can take your talents and go somewhere else. Yeah. And exactly. And if and if you if you as the employee at that point actually want to take that extra money, invest in the business, then great. I would say, take that money and ask for a loan, right? You know, ask for a loan with a rate, right? So instead of getting the cash in your paycheck, you would have that stock options worth something. Maybe you should be then handing it back to them as a loan that pays interest. And if they have, you know, but that's, you're, you're betting that they, uh, that they, they give you your money back, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, and, and there's lots of, yeah, there's lots of um, other options. So, you know, joining a public company is always an option because public companies, your stock compensation is immediately liquid. Correct, yeah. So, you know, I, I think startups, in my opinion, the more educated employees are, the more educated founders are, the tougher the sell becomes because you really have to pull the wool over someone's eyes to kind of, get them to buy into the model. And I, look, I think that upsets a lot of investors. They feel like they, you know, oh my gosh, this last, you know, this company we invested in, it made it all of its employees millionaires. And how many companies have you invested in? Well, about 400. And how many more are yeah. like that? Yeah. Two, right? So like, okay, let's, let's be realistic friends. Yeah. So we've talked, uh, you know, about some of your early stuff about the Silicon Valley about the Spark Turo and and a little bit of your your background and such and as we bring it home, what what would Rand say? You know, what words of wisdom would you give to your younger self? Like what, what that would have really moved the needle for you? Like there's there's people listening that are trying to figure out what they do, and what advice would you have given yourself that probably would have really made a difference for for how yeah. you how you went about things, not not the mechanics of the business, but how you went about things. I wish I wish I had had a lot more tough questions and and frankly a harsher um, a, made a harsher assessment of the ecosystem that I was in, and not just assumed, you know, not just assumed good intent and good incentives up and down the the sort of. Um, authority stack, not just assume that because someone is a good person and kind and friendly, that their incentives are aligned with my own. Um, 
and and the same goes for the entire environment that I was in. So I I love tech. I love the innovation. I like technology itself. I like a lot of the people. I've made wonderful friends through this world. Um, I, I like a lot of my investors uh, personally and professionally. I don't think they're bad people at all, but that doesn't mean that I should close my eyes to how the models work, how the culture is biasing me to make decisions that might not be right for me, my team, my company, my, my customers. Those are the things I wish I had urged myself to question, right. urged myself to dig into the incentives and the structures around all this stuff, understand them better and, and be willing to make my own decisions, be willing to innovate, not just in the product I'm building, but in the type of company that I'm building. Yeah, that, that, that's that's what I um, I call that that, that back to that uh, focus and follow through that purpose, right? What's the purpose yeah. of you know begin with the end in mind? What's my purpose? What's really going to focus on where I'm where I'm going? But also, don't believe I have all the answers, right? Like. Go, go, like, go talk to, like, yeah, like, or that someone like, else does. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I use the analogy of the, the seven blind men describing the elephant, right? I, I'm, and, but I'm fully sighted, right? And I'm looking at my side of the elephant, right? And I, and I, I, I believe this is exactly what the elephant looks like. But until I walk around the other side, I don't realize that it was just simply a, an LCD projection and there is the backside is all wires, right? It, until you actually walk around, and ask the other guy on the other side, what does it look like? You you don't know how ugly it looks, right? You, you don't know what the situation, Absolutely. right? So Absolutely. thank you, Rand, it's been great. You've, you've, you've really helped people understand that there's an alternative to, to looking at the, the, you know, the VC marketplace and, and playing to their fiddle and having a different choice. So we really appreciate it. Thank you, Rand. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So. This, that's it for this episode. You've had some uh, great uh, insights. Uh, wishing for everybody, this is Philip Topham, the Savvy Founder, wishing you a bright and profitable future in both your personal and business lives. Take care. Thank you, Rand. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and check out our website for tips, thesavvyfounder.com. You can also follow Philip on Clubhouse at The Savvy Founder, wishing you a profitable and bright future. Safe journeys. See you next week.